My guest today is Paul Sims. Paul is known as the farmer provocateur for his role in shaking up the industry. He regularly receives praise and support from executives, patients and other stakeholders around the world for his efforts to close the innovation gap. Paul's industry journey started in 2003 with Eye for Pharma, an organisation which he quickly grew into the pharmaceutical industry's most prominent, influential publisher and event organiser. CEOs and disruptors regularly featured on Paul's stages, especially at flagship events in Barcelona, Philadelphia, Tokyo and Sydney. He also devised and managed the only pharmaceutical award ceremony to focus on what really matters, patient and healthcare value. Eye Pharma was acquired by Reuters in October 2019. As an independent, Paul has established a new role as a thought leader and advisor to those in the industry who are dissatisfied with the status quo, helping to bring new innovations and models to life. He's a frequent author of articles and a presenter with keynote talks at several companies, including Roche, Merck, Leo, AbbVie and Takeda. I've known Paul for a while, and whilst the label of pharma provocateur offers up a good description of what he does, his provocation is not just based on throwing out ill-conceived criticism. He backs his statements with ideas and opinions about what needs to change. He also spends much of his time working in startups and non-profit organisations, which are all trying to advance the patient-centric agenda through different means. I wanted to explore with him what he thinks the rise of the customer means in pharma and how the industry needs to adapt to meet the challenges faced as entire operating models need to be reconsidered. You'll hear his views on how pharma companies need to respond to a new informed patient who turns to Google before they turn to their doctor. He also talks about how a fragmented healthcare model needs to change to embrace digital and how new innovation needs to move from traditional R&D into the commercial customer-facing part of the organisation where new innovators will play a key role going forward. This conversation may provoke you, but I hope it gives you some useful and thought-provoking ideas especially if you work in any part of the healthcare delivery system. Paul, first of all, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me. Really looking forward to this conversation. And as I said in the introduction, you describe yourself as a pharma provocateur. Now, knowing you as I do, that makes a lot of sense to me, but it possibly might baffle a few people that are listening. So I was wondering whether you could Describe what you mean by that and maybe build up to it with a bit of an overview of your background and how you've come to arrive at that point with that job title. Sure thing. Well, obviously, I will use this opportunity. It'll only happen once to blow my own trumpet and say I am needed in this industry. I guess the reason for that is because it's always been a very conservative, very safe industry, necessarily so. You know, you don't want your. Um, think life or death uh, medications being, uh, you know, created by crazy inventors who, who, who don't really understand uh, how bodies work, etc. But let's just say that the industry has been almost too safe. You know, people, this is an industry with a poor reputation. The pharmaceutical industry is generally on a par with other kinds of drug dealers and arms dealers and even bankers now um, in terms of uh, our, uh, our reputation. And I actually think it's a little bit unfair. Of course, there are some bad actors in every industry who disrupt disrupt it for many. But the truth is that the vast majority of people in this industry are trying to do the right thing. They are inspired by creating healthiness, healthy people. It's full of doctors who actually realize that they can help more people in this way as opposed to just being uh, in a hospital or as a GP. And it's absolutely potentially life 
changing industry to be in. The, the potential is huge. So I have worked for about 17 and a half years now in this industry. And what I did most of that time was actually build up the industry's sort of biggest publishing and events organization, which sort of means on the one hand, I've not really worked at the sharp end, actually in the labs and in front of doctors. But on the other hand, it means that I've talked to absolutely everybody in the industry and I know everybody in the industry and I'm sort of very, very well aware of what the macro level issues are, shall we say. So that was actually a really good experience. This is a fascinating place to work in, honestly. And uh, we got bought, we got acquired, our company by Reuters, almost, uh, just over a year ago now, actually. Uh, I'm not really one for working for a big company, probably the reason why I haven't worked for a, for a pharma company. So I decided to leave in May. I handed in my notice back in December. I didn't realize the world would look the way it does now. And I'd be running my last event from my kitchen table as we entered lockdown. But that's the way it was. And um, now I'm sort of free as a bird. And I am free to be a pharma provocateur. As you say, this is a necessary role. As I said, it was a necessary role because the truth is that what creates health is no longer just down to chemicals. What creates health is down to mindset, it's down to technology, it's down to so many other things. And if we take this super conservative mindset into our, you know, into our working practices going forward, we will never even understand consumers, let alone be able to keep up with them and to deliver technologies and ideas and, and solutions for them. So, so my job as a man that doesn't have to actually be responsible for any patients directly myself, I can prod and poke from the sidelines and be a, as provoking as I need to be to drive our industry forward. Fantastic. And, and how is the industry responding to your provocation so far? I mean, are you, are you getting some traction in terms of that now that you're off the leash, so to speak, and on your own? Yeah, well, I obviously like to think so. Obviously, I'm getting more traction with the sort of more innovative people within the industry, as opposed to the sort of um, those that are just there to sort of sort of get through the nine to five and, and go back home. But I think I'm being welcomed. I mean, I'm being invited more and more to give talks, not just at external meetings, but internal ones as well. I'm getting a lot of traction. I sort of built a sort of, I wouldn't say a fan base, because that would be a strange idea in the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry, but certainly, certainly um, some followers, should we say. Because the truth is, everybody recognizes that we have a business model that is broken in pharma. And it is absolutely the case that changes need to happen. And so many people are willing, but it's so hard to do. These companies are massive. We're talking 100,000 employees in many cases. That is a big tanker to steer around that takes not months, but years, possibly even decades. Okay. And let's get into some of that in a bit. I mean, I, I suppose where I'd love to start is, I mean, obviously you've written and spoken quite a lot anyway, previous to having this role and being you know, your own boss about the challenges and the opportunities facing life sciences. I suppose from my point of view, having come into this industry about four years ago, you could argue that the rise of the customer, if you're going to use that phrase, which is what this podcast series is all about, is really about the rise of the patient. I know that the pharma companies would consider their customers potentially to be the healthcare professionals. And of course, that's right. But in, in the context of consumerism and, and the rise of the customer, I sort of see it as rise of the patient. And I suppose what I'd love to explore with you, first of all, is, you know, to what extent do you think the patient really is rising in the same way as other markets and, and what the implications are for the pharma sector, if that is the case? 
Yeah, sure. Now, a tiny bit of background. The industry has historically not been allowed to talk to patients or certainly not allowed to promote. So everywhere except for the US and strangely New Zealand, you actually have laws preventing DTC, that's direct to consumer promotions of any kind whatsoever. So you turn on the TV in the US and it's full of drug advertisements, which we in the UK will find very strange. For them, it's completely normal. Here, it's illegal to promote to anyone else except the um, physician, the, H- the, the healthcare professional. So because pharma is so scared and so conservative and so safety first, it construes any communication with a patient to be a no-no, not just promotional conversation. So it's just, you know, it's just safer not to do it. So his pharma companies have historically put all of their dollars and all of their efforts into talking with, with HCPs, healthcare professionals only. That said, patients are becoming more powerful. Patients are actually wanting to get involved in their own healthcare and understand it better. They have access to the internet. Conversely, that means they have access to the US websites where they can get the uh, direct information on these, these medicines anyway. And most interestingly, perhaps, pharmaceutical companies increasingly are being paid only if they actually cure people. Historically, we've earned some of that bad reputation by being sort of pill pushers, flogging this stuff. You know, you see it kind of serialized in movies and in sort of hearsay everywhere. But pharma companies are only about selling pills and it's all about volume, volume, volume. These days, there's been a shift. For the first time, we can actually measure whether or not drugs work. We've only really been able to do this since electronic patient records became ubiquitous. So in the last few years. And we can actually see on a mass scale the impact of certain medicines doing certain things. Do they work or not? So all of a sudden, you've got pharma companies wanting to take a massive interest in whether their medicines actually work or not. And if they don't, they even want to build services on top of those medicines to make sure that the health value is actually provided. At the same time, you've got patients on the one hand wanting to know more, understand more, learn more, but also a desire for pharma companies not to be directly involved in their healthcare. If I told you that somebody from Pfizer or AstraZeneca was actually sponsoring or even higher employing the nurse that treated you in hospital, you'd start to wonder about the um, the ethics and the drivers of that of that of that person. So there still needs to be that arm's length gap, um, but there is at the same time a massive overlap now in wanting to get closer to the patient. Firstly, just to understand what actually makes you know. So what if your blood sugar level goes from four to five on a scale? Does that actually allow you to go and pick up your children in the morning from school? That's the health stuff that matters to us as patients. And so finding that kind of overlap, that common ground where we can um, measure it on a scale to say we've clinically made an improvement, but also to make a difference to patients' lives is something you can only do if you talk and understand with patients. Very hard to do historically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned there about being paid by results. Um, I, I guess you're inferring there this kind of value-based healthcare notion and, and concept. So presumably if you've got value-based healthcare in addition to sort of wanting to talk to them understand it you must be able to measure things in some way i mean how how do you go about doing that what how is that developing yeah it's really 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 hard it takes several million dollars just to create a measurement in pharma right just to create what they call a digital endpoint in many cases these days i.e a a standard that you can now measure something with because of course you have to come up something which is measurable by everybody 
you know, if you do it in London versus do it in somewhere in Scotland, you're not going to get a different readout just because of, you know, environment. You need to be able to actually tally that endpoint, that measure with genuine value in life. So, so, you know, exactly as I said before, if you go from four to five on a scale, does that actually make a significant difference to the patient? Yes or no. And then, of course, you've got this strange notion of cost. So it may well be that you can move things from a four to five, but if it costs several thousand dollars just to do that, then is it even worth it anymore? Unfortunately, money is finite, particularly now that we've just been through this pandemic. We're going to see the public purse squeezed going forward. So we cannot spend unlimited amounts on on drugs. And actually moving something from a four to five may not be worth it, as harsh as that may sound to the patient. So you've not just got value, you've got cost effectiveness within that value as well. And the whole thing is a very, very complicated and drawn out equation. It's There are entire departments in, in pharma companies dedicated to this stuff just to get the, the, the drugs onto market in the first place. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. And this value-based healthcare trend that you brought up, Neil, it's something that's really existed for maybe a decade now, but it's still finding hard, it's hard to get it into reality. Like even the, um, you know, if you said to the NHS, only pay if this drug works, you've not even figured out the question of who actually measures it. So, you know, maybe it takes extra staff within the NHS just to do the measurements. Well, the NHS is obviously not going to be very happy about that. So, yeah, they might save a bit of money, but it means they've got to invest a bit of money up front. So getting this right is is hard. This is why timescales in this industry are measured in, in years, not really in, in months or weeks, I'm afraid. And does that imply that, I mean, given the fact that, as you talked about, you've got R&D budgets, you've then got the, the costs of sales, promotions and, and all those sort of things. I mean, does it imply that if that's a trend that's going to continue and it becomes almost mainstream on the norm, will there be implications in terms of how pharma companies are set up and you know, how they're um, actually remunerated for this sort of stuff might depend upon their ability to be able to measure. So does that potentially imply a, a complete shift in the way that the whole operating model of a pharma company could be constructed going forward? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If I was to fast forward the clock 50 years from now, I would be very confident that the model would be very different. It's just that in the meantime, we've got this kind of very slow shuffle towards it. There's almost chicken and egg type situations in every corner of healthcare where you know, who goes first? If a pharma company, you know, I've, I've got a, I know one pharma company which is very focused on patients, a really sort of honest and authentic pharma company that actually tried to peg one of its drug launches to a happiness index. They found some academics who'd been working on this thing called the happiness index for quite some time to actually understand how, you know, whether, whether or not the, the impact of this drug was going to make a real difference to the happiness of people. And they effectively got laughed out of the room. So they spent, you know, literally millions of dollars trying to come up with these new measurements and to reorganize themselves around what they thought would be impactful. Like no one can deny that they would wish to be happy, I hope. And uh, it didn't work. So back to the drawing board. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And and so my next question is sort of thinking about, okay, so the drivers of some of that. And again, in most industry sectors that I've worked in, consumerism is fueled by higher expectations of the customers of organizations that are trying to serve them. So, you know, in this case, let's talk about patients and indeed HCPs in terms of their expectations here. And, and 
usually that expectation is fueled by empowerment. So people being able to, you mentioned the internet, you know, uh, people being able to access information and do something with it. So, you know, from my perspective, again, I'm just sort of reflecting what how I see this is patients read more, they know more, they've got access to more information about their health uh, and health in general. And that surely changes the dynamic within the doctor's room, if I can call it that. So it means that some patients themselves will expect more from doctors and in turn, pharma, you know, eat these pills every day is not going to work anymore. I mean, how, how do you kind of see that? Is, is that sort of consumer dynamic really behind this and driving this? Yeah. Well, the consumer dynamic obviously affects everybody. We naturally turn to Google these days before we turn to the doctor. And the medical community is pretty split. It's probably shifted. The last time I sort of checked in with it, it was kind of a 50-50 on whether doctors actually liked the fact that we have such informed patients who walk into a doctor's office and say, give me this, as opposed to actually asking for a diagnosis. Some people love the fact that patients are taking responsibility for their own care. Some people hate the fact that patients get it wrong and need to be re-educated in so many cases. You cannot obviously rely on all of the information on the internet. But the truth is that I would say not just in healthcare and pharma, we are moving beyond the age of the expert. I would say that the, the age of the expert is a sort of 20th century situation where if you ask the question, how do I make myself better or healthier, it would be follow the doctor's advice that would be the previous thing. Before that, by the way, it was, you know, follow God's advice. You know, it was almost a religious thing because we didn't necessarily understand all of the, the scientific uh, things that we do now today. So we've gone from a, an era of sort of reliant on, on sort of uh, what you believe in to the expert. And now we're moving into an era of data. You turn to Google before you turn to the doctor. You believe the readout on your fancy new health app watch or whatever before you even read, uh, believe what the doctor's saying. It's almost like a new religion, uh, datarism. And um, anybody that uh, enjoys Yuval Noah Harari, the guy that wrote Sapiens uh, and read his, his sequel to that, Homo Deus, will enjoy thinking about this stuff because he very much believes in this sort of datarism thing. We're increasingly arming ourselves with technology, knowledge, and you know, expectation, as you said, is rising. People are familiar with their their amazon or apple experiences and they want those to, to to come to healthcare we are trying the problem is that healthcare is fragmented it's um you've got different people who want different things within it there's no such thing as a ceo of pharma or a ceo of healthcare particularly in the us it's even more fragmented there where you've got huge commercial um uh, interests at every stage of the of the thing so actually getting a consolidated and sensible model which benefits patients as the ultimate customer is still a long way off, I'm afraid. We are trying, but the reality is that probably the best solutions are going to come from outside the existing system, i.e. startups, new people, you know, new innovators of various kinds. Turning the tankers around within farm, within healthcare is going to take many years. So the companies that are doing then, how are companies actually turning that expectation into an opportunity? Are there actually examples that you can think of that are, are managing it? There is a lot of effort. I mean, again, the spending is through the roof on digital health initiatives. These days, pharma companies literally set up incubators on the side. They actually fund startups sometimes and ask in return for very, very little. In fact, now would be a great time to launch a successful healthcare startup. You'd probably get a pharma company to give you that money almost free of charge. 
simply so that they can be aligned to that company and sort of have them near them. They, like, they literally set these incubators up within their offices just so you can, um, you know, there's some kind of cross-pollination effect. But the truth is that the machinery of healthcare is 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 pretty ironclad. It's hard to change that stuff around. I've even had conversations earlier today where people have sort of said, you know, I don't want to waste this crisis. We're in a pandemic right now. And, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, let this opportunity go by without giving us the opportunity to create fundamental change. But what does that change look like? Not really had the answers. No. Okay. So we really are at an inflection point. We don't know quite where it's going to head yet. But I mean, I, I would concur with those views in terms of just seeing the thought process is going on with all the right intentions. But as you say, it's pretty hard in any organization or any industry to to make such a fundamental shift when you've got such a, a massive organization behind you as well. So, I mean, what about the relationship between the, the HCP and the patient? Then, I mean, you, you sort of touched on it there briefly. I mean, you, your point totally understood, and I'm sure listeners will understand it as well. You know, 20 years ago, you walk in, you, you kind of take the word of the doctor as gospel, your GP or indeed the specialist. Um, I mean, is it as simple as that? Or is it, I mean, how is it shifting? What's going on there in terms of that relationship? Well, everything you said there is true. The patient is becoming more powerful. And in many ways, I, that's a trend I encourage. I think that the patient should become the experts. And in many ways, they'll say they're the expert because they experience it already. They should become the expert in their own disease and take responsibility. Not all patients can, of course, but where, where it's possible, it should be encouraged. But the other reason why physicians have lost power shall we say, is because there is not enough money to go around. Once upon a time, a doctor could prescribe any drug they wanted to or any treatment they wanted to. That is not the case anymore. So effectively, doctors are given a menu. They called it a formulary. And they're told you may only prescribe from, from, from here in the same way that you can only order from the menu in a restaurant. And um, all of the things on that menu have been pre-vetted to be cost-effective. So... There's a body in the UK, for example, called NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. It's known as a health technology assessment body. Sorry, far too much jargon here. Um, but uh, if every country has one of these now. And they test drugs on behalf of the NHS in the UK. And they will recommend or the opposite for every new treatment as it comes in. And it has to be shown to be not just effective, but cost effective uh, and it's amazing how much that cost effectiveness actually matters. From farmers' point of view, this is hard. Can you imagine if you were to sell, you know, a pen? I'm just looking at things on my desk here. Sell, sell a pen and be told you cannot even try selling this pen until you have proven to the authorities over a period of many months that this pen is more effective than any other pen on the market for the same cost. Mm. That would be a harsh situation to be in, but that is what what farmer has to face. Now, I'm not trying to sort of get a violin out here for pharma they've had it good for many years and in many ways we can't tell if a pill works or not we have to sort of use this scientific testing method to tell whether or not it's actually going to work we need to, to have this rigor in the system but it's hard it's you know uh, this this i feel like this uh, this uh, session is becoming a bit of a swan song for, for poor old farmer here but uh, this is this is the the reality of the situation it is it is not easy and luckily there's a lot of very passionate people in this industry who are trying to do the right thing despite our very poor reputation and the fact we don't get invited to dinner parties anymore we are going to uh, we're going to pursue this interesting and uh, thank you for the pen analogy i mean i think for anyone listening who isn't in the sector that that just starkly brings it to life 
in terms of the, the issues you face as a as a senior member of an exec team of a pharma company that are trying to to turn this around, as you say. So, I mean, I, I know we've sort of touched on value based healthcare, and 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 you know, there's, again, there's some jargon there. So, I just if you don't mind, just want to dig in a little bit onto that because. From my perspective, in terms of the work that we do at Penn, you know, particularly around things like developing patient support programs, where, as you say, it's not just about the pill anymore. There's a whole load of other facets to somebody managing their condition, and and increasingly, it is around the patient. You know, obviously, the HCP is is a critical part of the value chain, but increasingly, companies that we're working with are trying to think about what does that mean? What does the patient journey or the pathway feel like? And how do they participate in the most appropriate way that supports the efforts of the HCP rather than diminishing it in any way? So, I mean, just sort of think about how do you move to a situation? I mean, I'm just trying to sort of project forward and and then work back and say, well, if you're not being paid for an outcome at the moment, how do you as a big organization start to move towards a situation where you're doing that? As you say, it takes millions of dollars to even create a measure, let alone anything else. I mean, is there is there a period where everyone has to expect that profits will dip hugely because you're massively investing in a in a new way, a new value chain for one of way of putting it? Or is there another way? Well, anyone who has studied the US recently, and that probably includes most of us given what's been happening recently there will know that to a much larger degree, patients pay for their own medicines. They they obviously have insurance, but the quality of your insurance depends on really how much. And it is actually the case in the US that those who are who have the worst insurance or no insurance end up paying the most. It's not a very nice situation at all. And the the absolute reality is that the US has paid for most of the cost of medicines and it cannot afford it anymore. We have as a pharma industry, we have focused on what I call specialty medicines, i.e. small patient populations where there's no sort of competition for another treatment. So you can charge whatever hell the price you want. And I think that, you know, talk to any pharma company right now and their strategy will be heavily weighted towards these niche specialist small patient populations. We call them orphan drugs. Uh, you know, they're very, very, you know, the smaller the better in many ways. I actually think it's somewhat exploitative you know, it's it's almost sort of these guys haven't got any other choice, so we're going to you know charge whatever we can. And the reality, as we touched on earlier, is that there isn't enough money in the system for this trend to continue. Uh-huh. We're we're hitting ceilings everywhere. The latest science is amazing. I don't know if you know much about cell and gene therapy, but you can cure cancer by taking blood out of somebody's body, reformulating it, and putting it back in again. And that, you know, has the ability to turn around some really quite acute stage three, stage four cancers around in a way that couldn't even be imagined even five, 10 years ago. So the science is incredible, but the reality is our focus on science unrelentingly has created this problem where we can no longer afford to pay for it. So in answer to your question, pharma companies have always felt they can kind of get away with it and they can do what they want. And the reality is they are walking towards the edge of an abyss. And I think that given how much money we've all had to spend on the pandemic measures that we we're in right now, there isn't going to be as much money available in the system and we will be forced to find innovation elsewhere. So for the first time, you know, you said you've been working with lots of people to sort of find value in patient support programs. Those things are great, but they've been minor relative to the innovation in R&D. R&D has always been the innovators. Now we actually have to look to the people outside of R&D 
for that innovation because the only place the value is going to be found going forward is in working at the front end, working with the patient to find new pockets of value. That's the kind of value that can be brought in in months and in the next few years as opposed to in decades with the R&D guys. So it's a good thing that the pharma industry is staring at the abyss perhaps right now. It's the burning platform that we we actually need that means that we're no longer able to be as complacent as we have been and able to just sleepwalk our way through to increasing margins as a way of sustaining our companies because that is unsustainable and it's not right. And it's something that people within the industry recognize as well, but it's just a very hard tanker to turn around, as I said before. And just to follow the value chain up from R&D a stage further, I mean, I guess, would you agree also that the role of the commercial organization within pharma, you know, having very large teams of brand managers, lots of campaigns, lots of materials and armies of reps out in the field doing things. I mean, it, it begs the question how that's going to work in the environment that you paint there, where that's obviously cost a lot of money. And, and the question is, is that the most value-creating way of spending your, your commercial dollar? That's exactly where the innovation has to come from. These guys have historically been seen as just distributors of medicines, yeah. almost lowly folk, even though they is where we actually spend a huge amount of money. <laughs> lowly folk compared to the R&D guys who are where the real innovation comes from now. It is in patient support programs. It is in understanding what patients actually want. It is in thinking like a technology company and thinking of the technological innovations that could actually make a difference. It is in finding preventative solutions to medicine, not just curative ones. We actually have a very a, a, a sick care rather than a healthcare system at the moment. We, we only cure the sick, not the healthy. And there are new opportunities. What about preventing people from getting ill? What about making us better than our sort of standard, you know, improving our, our quality of life beyond where it is today. You know, maybe we can add years to our lives. Maybe we can improve, you know, our energy levels as we go about our days. These are all new opportunities. These are all places where it's not just research, hardcore sort of chemistry that's going to be the answer. There's so many other areas. And this is what, this is the sort of the new spot that the pharma industry needs to get. And it's... <laughs> It requires a completely different person. Talent is a massive issue. Most sort of young, dynamic, smart people, they want to go and work in Silicon Valley. They don't necessarily want to work in big pharma. And as a result of that, we are losing the potential to change. And we absolutely need to be able to tell our story. We've got no excuses. Health is the most emotive industry, perhaps, of any. You know, we should be able to tell a very compelling story that means that these intelligent and dynamic graduates actually want to work with us. But we do a very poor job of that. And it goes right back to the whole safety thing I spoke about at the beginning. You know, pharma leaders hide. They they don't want to stick their head above the parapet. It's too dangerous. But, you know, we need people to sort of tell that story of why this is an important and a positive, could be a positive industry to be in. We don't have that right now. Uh, again, that's that's really interesting. So as we said earlier, as a sector, it scores consistently low on reputation benchmarks against other industries, you know, for all the problems we talked about. So let's not dwell too much on that. But presumably, I mean, I, I, there's two interesting sort of paradoxes in my mind here. So there, there's the fact that the amazing inventions, the stuff that's going on, the science you talked about earlier, you know, blood therapy and gene therapy and things around cancer and stuff. Is that the kind of stuff 
that will turn the reputation of the industry around. I mean, you use the term there, big farmer. It's a, it's a kind of, you know, a, a sort of a, a slight that's thrown at the industry. You know, it's, it's these big monolithic companies that, that aren't trustworthy, et cetera. And that's, that's a, a terrible thing that holds the reputation back. So, I mean, is it, how does that, is, does that reputation change just by changing those behaviors, talking about the good that you're doing and, and gradually over a period of time showing that you can behave in a way that actually does meet the rising needs of customers or how does it work? This is where I think the industry is getting it pretty wrong at the moment. Everybody in the industry always says we're so bad at telling our own story because, you know, the, the fact is that life expectancy has really risen across the world, including in developing countries, massively as a result of this industry. We have literally added years to many, many people's lives. We are motivated by life, genuinely. Almost everybody who I ever speak to, it's all about that. I think the problem is that we talk, we want to talk about our past. And I think that instead we should talk about our future. I've got this sort of idea that I sort of came up with a while ago. That I call it the four A's. It starts with ambition. If you're ambitious enough, then you drive attention because naturally that's interesting. That then drives the accountability. Once you've got the attention, people are looking to see if you do it right. And then finally, that drives the action at the end of the day. The classic examples of this include putting a man on the moon, you know, crazy ambitious goal, drives a lot of attention, climate change goals, reduce carbon emissions by 50% or huge, you know, hu- you know, how on earth do you reduce carbon emissions by 50%? It's that kind of huge lofty goal that actually drives interest. People like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are obviously masters at this. They will, you know, say we're going to get to Mars, we're going to change the car industry, we're going to you know, revolutionize retail. These guys are, are masters of the press release. They use press releases strategically as opposed to just tactically. So we in pharma need to be very, very much better at telling this story, the future story, what we could actually bring to the table, show the ambition that we have, get, you know, people around the world excited about the healthcare story for the future. We have a wonderful reputation when we save someone's relatives from, from death. We, we, we obviously have a local reputation that is great on a wider level with obviously the majority of people who are healthy in the world. We have a terrible reputation because we don't inspire anybody. And it goes right back to that whole safety thing, you know, willing to sort of stick your neck out a little bit. Uh, presumably, dare I say it, COVID-19 therefore offers an opportunity for the sector in that respect. And I don't mean that in some kind of conniving commercial sense, but, you know, with the pace of, I mean, we're here today talking, it's the 9th of uh, November and, um, you know, it's just been announced that Pfizer are saying it's 90% effective vaccine, you know, they're testing at the moment. I mean, presumably, you know, that kind of collaborations that take place between academics and pharma in in this kind of pace and, and, you know, at the moment, it would seem that government strategy is to wait for the vaccine and we just kind of uh, keep locking down in the, in the meantime. That's not meant to be a political statement, but it uh, seems to be fairly factual. So, I mean, presumably it's an opportunity there, is it? It's an opportunity that I think we're going to miss, if I'm honest. Yes, the eyes of the world are on us. We are, you know, effectively tasked with saving the world right now. And we have done some amazing work in those working on the front lines with COVID-19 to basically work in parallel rather than in series to to start manufacturing a drug before you even know if it works, to, to figure out the distribution before you even know that if the manufacturing works, etc. And to really put everything in the kitchen sink into changing what normally takes a decade into taking less than a year. But that's only the people on the front line of that particular area. 
the rest of our industry is almost shielded by that sort of positive effort. And the rest of the industry has not innovated to the extent it needs to. It's not changed its way of thinking. In, in many ways, it's tried to focus on business continuity, trying to sort of prop up the rest of the, um, the industry and the uh, revenues that it wishes to achieve. I actually um, have been a little bit vocal on the subject recently. I don't think that pharma companies should make a big profit in 2020. And if they have made a significant increase in their profits, they have let down their communities. Think of Amazon as an example. Jeff Bezos and his Q1 results for 2020 told his investors to take a seat because the expected incredible gains that Amazon should have supposedly gained were not going to materialize. Instead, he was spending $4 billion on effectively creating the first COVID-secure supply chain from end to end and basically redoubling in terms of staff hired and protective measures and PPE and all the rest of it. So what, what Jeff Bezos did was say, no, we're not going to make a profit right now. We are going to invest and we're going to take market share in many ways, but we're going to set ourselves up for the future. And I think that Amazon, sh uh, that Pharma should be taking a leaf out of this book. We should be looking at the incredible strain we see on healthcare professionals everywhere we go. You know, the huge disparities now in sort of early detection cancer rates because people haven't been turning up at hospital, etc. Those are the problems that we should be fixing right now. We should be investing to improve not just our reputation, but frankly, people's lives while we can. And this is a great year to be doing that. And I fear that we have missed the opportunity already as an industry. And it's a massive shame. I wish we had, I wish we had a stronger leadership, if I'm honest. And I wonder why they call you a pharma provocateur. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I imagine I'm kicked out of as many rooms as I'm invited into. But, um... Well, I hope that's not the case. But I mean, I, it's very interesting. When, when you were talking a few moments ago about, you know, having a very big, bold, but clear goal and being determined to do it, I, I was having a bit of a moment thinking, crikey, the consequences of of not taking this opportunity in terms of however many hundreds of thousands or millions of lives that could be improved or saved as a result of what pharma could do kind of feels like a massive consequence of failing to take action and, and rather than staring at the abyss, actually stepping over it and finding a, a new path. Absolutely. And, you know, it's all a symptom of safety. We've gone and shot ourselves in the foot by being safety first. We're so, you know, so obsessed with being careful not to sort of cause any harm that we don't try anything. It's a bit like being so afraid of driving that you never get into a car and go anywhere and you you know you end up being a sort of living a hermit the whole of your life and that's exactly what we've turned our pharmaceutical industry into somehow we've managed to get the bad reputation anyway <laughs> so so you know uh, it hasn't really worked out very well but the truth is that the abyss that i said that we're staring into might well bring about the welcome change it's going to be painful it's think of it as a hard sports massage it's going to be painful but you'll feel better about that at the other end <laughs> Very good. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, this is a serious subject, right? So I don't want to be frivolous about it, but um, I, I think, you know, let's let's turn our attention to more positive thoughts around dealing with some of these issues and again, set against this this concept of the, the rise of the, the consumer, the customer. How is this going to turn itself around? How are we going to, I mean, I, I'm assuming, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, sort of, um, you know, people wanted to go to Silicon Valley and you talked about innovators and disruptors. I mean, presumably, 
uh, tech disruptors are going to play a, a part in whatever ecosystem becomes successful. In this. Sorry, it's a real big jargony business word there, but it, it strikes me that no one pharma company on their own is is capable of, of dealing with this. And why should they be? This feels like a massive opportunity to collaborate more, to use the benefits of all sorts of technologies that consumers will use to manage their health going forward. I mean, is that how you see it? So we've talked about why Silicon Valley and these new raft of innovators are going to make an impact. But the truth is that even if they make themselves successful, they're not going to have a huge impact on healthcare in general. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar industry here. And um, like so many areas in life, I actually think the, the precursors, the, the, the real factors that are going to make a big difference are actually big tech. So the typical Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and then the sort of second tiers uh, companies coming, coming swiftly behind as well. Um, a lot of people are not sure which one of these companies is going to make the biggest impact. We've obviously mentioned Amazon. Uh, a lot of people think Apple is critical because of the sort of consumer ecosystem they've been able to generate, the, the focus on privacy, the uh, recent launches they've had have all been in healthcare uh, or, or all tied to healthcare benefits, you may have noticed. Google, a lot of people believe through their... Um, Sophisticated data techniques are going to use AI to discover the next raft of medicines or treatments. And indeed, they're putting a lot of efforts around that and they're, they're poised for success, I'm sure. But I do believe that Amazon will take the biscuit just because they really very much own the consumer, firstly. I mean, they know more about you than Google does. They know your purchase preferences, where you put your gut. And uh, they also have the strange situation where they've trained their um, their entire investment community not to expect a profit. And healthcare is an expensive area. If you can go in and provide healthcare services without having to turn a profit, which, by the way, they do in America because it's so much commercially run, you can make huge inroads into this area. And actually, even Amazon has failed to really deliver in the last couple of years against expectations in healthcare. They actually put a lot into creating something that hasn't really materialized yet. But they have to move into healthcare because they absolutely are used to these 20% growth rates and it's the only way of sustaining the value in their companies. So I think that they will create things that at the moment pharma companies will laugh at. There's a, there's a quote, one of my favorite quotes is from Clayton Christensen who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, which is, at first innovation looks like a toy. This is why Netflix got laughed out of the room when they approached Blockbuster. It's why so many things get laughed out of the room when they first appear. So I think we're going to be surprised by stuff that doesn't look anything like what we think it should do. The technology might be poor, but it will steadily improve in the background. And we're going to see innovation from maybe a big tech source, but perhaps in a different guise from what we might be expecting. It's not going to be copying the pharma industry is going to be finding a new way to look at healthcare and to understand healthcare and to actually put the onus on people to pay for it themselves we you know governments typically pay for 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 healthcare at the moment uh, either directly or indirectly whereas obviously people like amazon prime and all the rest of it we pay for ourselves so it's that preventative wellness save yourself look after yourself take responsibility trend that is going to appear in some guise or another and make that big impact in healthcare. Okay. Very interesting indeed. Thank you for that. Okay. So that paints a very interesting sort of thought of the future. You know, we've talked a lot about value-based healthcare, how that might unfold. We've looked at other sort of almost peripheral services. We've, we've looked at um, preventative healthcare, which is obviously a massive, great big shift. So sort of trying to bring all of that together, what do you think 
I mean, you, you wrote an article, a very fascinating article, I think it was in April, which was five bold predictions for post-COVID pharma. Now we're sort of seven months down the track. Uh, we're still in the grip of COVID, and but you know we, we're in a bit of a holding pattern, but things are starting to, to look like they might be moving. How have those predictions changed at all? I mean, not just around COVID, but obviously, you know, we've talked here about some big, you know, uh, mega trends, if you like, within the industry. I mean, how, would, if you rewrote that article now, how, how would you assess those five quite big, bold predictions? Because not many people would make predictions and call them predictions and uh, put it out on LinkedIn. So, Yeah. Well, predictions are important. The, the, the thing about being trying to predict is that you shouldn't necessarily be trying to be right. You should be trying to get the conversation going. And that's that's my attitude. So I'm willing to stick my neck out because I'm not responsible for patients, like I said earlier. So my predictions, I'm just going to recall them one by one. The first one was we will all become a little more Chinese. Obviously, China was the first to, to be able to get out of the, uh, the the pandemic situation. And I thought that we were going to see a lot of um, sort of controls, much like the Chinese method, to try and, uh, to try and uh, uh, organize society. You could almost argue, if you wanted, that a dictatorship of the type that, that China is familiar with is actually more appropriate for a pandemic situation than the democracies that we run today in terms of controlling them. But the truth is that we all rebelled against uh, the control measures and uh, particularly uh, uh, acutely seen in the US with the huge movements against even wearing something as simple as a face mask. We have not become a little bit more Chinese, so I failed on that first prediction. The second one was pharma will fail to turn attention into acceptance. And this is exactly what I talked about already. Um, we have the world's eyes on us and we are not making the necessary changes that we need uh, to actually come out of this in a better way. So I was right on that prediction, unfortunately. I wrote, a major privacy backlash is imminent. I think this one is simply a case of being too early. We, I think that, it's, um, that we've taken a lot of um, liberties with people's data to try and cure the current pandemic and to, um, to do that. And I was expecting that perhaps as a result of that, that could backfire on us. I could, uh, some people would say it already has. The apps have not had the take-up that we might have liked or might have wished for if we designed them. We've certainly been very sensitive towards um, living in a sort of monitored society and rebelled against that. So a bit of a privacy backlash, I think, is is here. Maybe not as strong as I predicted. Pharma will rebuild Africa's health infrastructure. Well, actually, this was in response to the fact that I thought the pandemic would probably hit hardest in Africa. In reality, the African countries, despite the fact they don't have very strong safety nets for those on, on welfare or those out of work, took pretty severe measures against the pandemic and also benefited from a couple of other things, such as the climate in the country. Obviously, it's a warmer place and the the, the, the virus doesn't uh, survive as well in, the, in, in, in that kind of environment. So again, my hope was that farm would come in and, and, and help make a step improvement in the African health infrastructure as a result of that poor situation. I guess that's one situation where the, the abyss has not hit and therefore the solution hasn't been found either, unfortunately. So no, I was wrong on that one. And then last one was pharma will quit pretending and turn provider. So this is where I, I mentioned already that pharma uh, needs to move away from just making pills and actually curing people. Uh, and as a result of that, it's much more interested in kind of the service side of its industry than just the product side. So pharma, when I say pharma will quit pretending and turn provider is because we've kind of been playing lip service to this whole idea for so long and we're going to finally actually do this. We're going to not necessarily build hospitals, but we're certainly going to help others to build hospitals. 
We're going to take an active role, a partnership role in a holistic system around the patient that is going to drive patient outcomes, i.e. cures. That is happening. So I'm giving myself 50%. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty good going i think um yeah it, in terms of marking your homework i think it's probably pretty accurate i mean um but i mean that, that gives me i mean to hear you assess it in that way given the the conversation we had earlier i mean it does it strikes me that there's lots of reasons to be optimistic about some of these things actually transforming i mean what, what other predictions might you make now given that you know, we're seven months on, not just from a pandemic, but any, anything else to add if you were to, to rewrite that article now? Well, I think that we're definitely going to see the dip before we see. I mean, the pandemic has gone on and it's been more painful than most people envisaged at the beginning. We didn't have the uh, ability to resurge like they did in China, like I said. So the public purse is squeezed. And the reality is that these high priced specialty treatments are going to come. It's a shame in a way, because some of the science, as I said earlier, is incredible. Like, it's science fiction stuff. And unfortunately, we're not going to have the ability to pay for it. So some people will suffer that would have otherwise got a, got a, got a measure out. And, but I think that the larger improvement on large patient, you know, chronic diseases, as they call them, i.e. diseases that never really go away, that need to be managed and need to have um, innovation to manage them better, those diseases will benefit from this situation because that's the way we sustain our industry. So that's probably the only sort of um, prediction I'd be willing to pin my colours to right this second, as a, apart from the sort of big big tech ones that I already mentioned and the sort of general trend towards not being able to pay for everything via governments anymore, but having to actually pull out, you know, there's a the wealthy are going to have to pay more for their healthcare going forward. The NHS will become stratified. It is unfortunately unsustainable to expect the NHS to be able to pay for everything going forward, again, because of the situation we're in right now. So certain healthcare treatments will be targeted at the sort of the 1%, the the people that can afford it at first, and they may well be things that are preventative or wellness-oriented as a result, alternatives to going to the gym, if you like. And that's where the market will start and will eventually, I hope, proliferate to everybody else uh, as, as innovation should. Absolutely. And going back to the whole point of this series, the rise of the customer, the consumer power being facilitated by companies that adopt that, the consumer owning their own data, having control over it, understanding how it's being used effectively and actually potentially being in the driving seat of their own care, which is a a lofty vision, but one that seems like it's... Uh, one of the only real clear routes forward in terms of how all of this might fit together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I believe very much in that. Well, we've covered a lot of ground there. I just wanted to um, to sort of, if you like, lighten for a moment and just uh, uh, think about generally, and this is a question I ask all of my guests really, is, is talk about what, what does being truly customer-centric actually mean? What does it mean to you? I think that there's the easy answer. Uh, We can obviously look at lots of examples of where technology and mindset have really helped with that. But I think that the real answer is it comes down to courage, comes down to confidence. I think that being customer-centric means moving from a push to a pull. And in order to do that in a situation where you're probably feeling slightly desperate, most people are because business has not done well over the last six months in general terms, you're probably feeling a little bit desperate in most cases. And to have that courage to not push sales messages and to 
instead take a listening first approach, an understanding first approach, a a customer support oriented approach first. And knowing that through good measurement, we haven't really talked about things like agility today, but measuring the right things and becoming a learning organization and having the good faith that karma effectively will will sort us out by by taking that approach it does require massive amounts of courage right now it's so easy to just spam shall we say um our customers with with and a race to the bottom almost in terms of prices or value or whatever it is that you want to shout about and it's exactly what i think pharma should do the 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 healthcare community is struggling on so many different aspects right now. We should be taking a supportive, listening-first approach. Bringing agility to pharma is one of the hardest places to bring agility to, as you, for all the reasons I just spoke about, but they are trying nonetheless. And I hope that the listeners of, of this can, can you know, take, have some faith that if pharma's attempting to be more agile, then, then it should be at least easier for, for most other companies because <laughs> we, we, need to be, we need to be that way. Uh, it's the only way to actually thrive in an uncertain environment and guarantee that you don't end up you know, splurging far too much money in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's a very good point. And courage, I mean, um, I remember when I was being trained on innovation tools and techniques by um, a company called What If, who are known to a lot of people. And uh, out of the sort of five big tools they train you, the last one is bravery. They talk about bravery being an absolutely critical tool in innovation. So I think the two do go very neatly hand in hand. And I think we sort of come around full circle there in terms of those sort of core leadership behaviors that are required, but also ally that to technology and driving forward innovation feels like a, a, a very good synergy to have in, in the business. So. Typically, we talk about innovation, though, with when it comes to the product and the research people, but it's the people at the front end on the customer side that need to be innovating mm-hmm. now. And that's where I think I'm trying to sort of emphasize this shift in responsibility. Don't think of yourself as just a a distributor or the sort of last mile, you need to be innovating in that last mile. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And just a couple of other questions then. So, you know, to try and typify that outside of our pharma, where have you seen real exemplars of, of fantastic customer experience, perhaps that you've experienced yourself personally? I mean, again, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a trite question, but it's always one that really gets to the heart of what does this actually mean to somebody individually? And I'm curious as to, you know, what, what makes a really good experience and who does that? And um, maybe one of the most terrible experiences as well, perhaps without naming the company involved. Um, if we can avoid that, that'd be great. Sure. I'm going to actually start this question by just referencing pharma very briefly again. We have clinical trials which are very difficult and expensive, and people believe in pharma that you can't digitize them because patients need sort of kid gloves. They need to be seen face to face by somebody all the time. They need to, which is true in many cases, you know, obviously serious diseases, that sort of face to face contact is key. But when I look at the financial sector, in particular personal or retail banking and the, the proliferation of various different apps, would you say that your customer experience and your, your has decreased in, 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 in value as a result of those? Most people would say, no, they have more interactions with their bank than they might have done before. Uh, they, they feel like they're able to you know, do the vast majority of transactions or, or inquiries are, are, are well catered for through, through technology. So I think that we need to get out of our minds that technology is a reduction necessarily in customer experience and take a slightly more 
mature approach than that. Uh, of course, it doesn't work for everybody. Older generations, for example, might not like to bank through an app. But anyway, one of the um, examples I like the most, and it's not one that I've been able to use personally because it's um, not available in the UK where I live right now, but it's actually an insurance, another uh, very constrained industry, regulated industry, uh-huh. very old industry. And there's a company called Lemonade that a lot of people uh-huh. may have heard of. They launched on the stock market earlier this year. They have a really interesting way of doing their customer experience because, of course, with insurance, you typically feel that only one of you can win. It's either you or the insurance company, not both of you. So, you know, it's, you know, make a claim and either it gets rejected or it gets approved. And one one side is the winner, one side is the loser. But Lemonade actually changed this by introducing a third body into the group, which is charity. So they basically said, we're going to take 25% of your premium and we're going to keep that. And that's just going to be what we take. We're not going to try and go above or below that. That's us. And the remaining money either gets paid out to you in the event of a claim, or if it doesn't, we're going to pay that money to charity. So all of a sudden, you're no longer in that place where you think that your insurance company is against you and you sort of need to cheat them uh, or, or fudge the truth or whatever it is. And these guys have actually studied the amount of uh, trust and, and the change in relationship that people have had through their insurance company with this. The reason I like this example is because it's not just a tactical sort of bolt-on example. It's a fundamental redesign in how this kind of company can operate. And I think that we can't provide customer experience if we're relying on just people being nice because eventually people won't be nice. We need to make customer experience a structural thing where irrespective of whether you're nice or not, it cannot be changed. And I think that like, just completely changing the equation, as, as Lemonade has done in, in the insurance market, is a really smart way of, of, of making, you know, if you're talking in typical NPS-type terminology, these guys are an order of magnitude higher than their competitors and, you know, made really interesting inroads as a result. Very good. And what about a terrible experience you've had, dare I ask? I'm going to tell you about an experience that I've definitely not shared before, and most people should say that I should never share. And it happened about a month ago. I haven't mentioned it, but I have a sort of side interest in renovating properties. For some reason, I've always been obsessed with turning ugly buildings into nice ones. I don't know why, but I have. And um, I bought a building Uh, a few years ago that was already halfway through its development and the builders had put on uh, sort of UPVC windows instead of wooden windows and this was in a conservation area. I forgot about this this building because I actually sold, uh, I turned it into flats and sold it but I still own the freehold for the building and I'd sort of almost forgotten about it and um, I got a knock at the door at about 7am on a Sunday morning I was still asleep I confess and it was police and they basically said to me, you come in with us. They bundled me into the back of a van and I spent two days in a cell. And it turns out that because of this window situation, I'd actually missed a, a court date or something that had, had appeared in the post and I just hadn't seen it. Uh, so they decided it was important enough for me to um, be locked up so that I couldn't escape the next court date, which again, which I didn't even realize was scheduled for the following Monday. So I had my freedom stripped away from me. So this is an extreme example, I suppose, to show just how something as 
simple as uh, getting the wrong materials on your windows, which, by the way, I was obviously always happy to change the damn windows instead of getting into going into prison, for crying out loud. It just shows how the breakdown in communication can occur. And when you've got a fragmented and disoriented system where one person says one thing and all of a sudden it escalates in the background and turns out that... You know, you've committed a crime, a heinous crime on a power par with, you know, far more serious violent issues, which my fellow prisoners uh, would admit to. But uh, I was I was laughed at. I was laughed at in that police, as you can imagine. I was told on exits, you're not our usual clientele, which I suppose I should take as a compliment. Um, so, yeah, I had the bad end of a poor customer experience. Story, okay, well, that is, that is, say. first of all, you've kept that one quiet because uh, I certainly haven't heard that story before and I've heard a few stories. It only recently that, happened. It only recently happened. Yeah, okay. Well, that is, that is a, as I would have expected from you, a, um, a, an extreme but um, revealing story. And I, I would agree that's a, a good example of things cascading out of control. I don't know what the moral of the story is, apart from obviously don't put the wrong material on your windows. But... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, even the people who enforced it don't didn't want that to happen. So, so um, well, I, I hope not. Anyway, wow. Okay, interesting. From uh, from big pharma to to prison and back again. I'm back again. Um, I know. <laughs> it's brilliant. Thank you, Paul. Paul, I, I thank you so much for um, for sharing your thoughts and, and ideas on some massive subjects and massive issues, and um, as ever, being candid, but very structured in you know what you're saying and um yeah i genuinely hope that people listening to this from outside of the pharma sector can can draw some inspiration from some of the really key messages that have come through there about the you know the need to really push through and and think about operating in a different way but you know from what i've gathered in this conversation is you know again it starts from the customer at the end of the day and and these these big changes that are going on and it would seem that some of the companies that are going to come forward to offer some of these solutions are already as close to the customer as any company can get anyway. And actually, therefore, it's incumbent upon the existing industry to move closer in that direction and, and, and embrace that in some way, I suppose. That's a, certainly one of the big messages, apart from some of the some of the other big stuff in there. So so thank you so much indeed for, uh, for taking part. Appreciate it. And... Um, I really hope that people can get, draw some inspiration from the conversation. An absolute pleasure, Neil. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's also the first time anyone's ever described me as structured, so I, I, I definitely appreciate that. And um, yeah, give me luck as I as I try to have an impact on this huge but very important industry because it's uh, as I hope we can all see for the benefit of all of us, and um, it needs to happen. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure our paths will cross. Indeed. Perfect. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.